Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The year is 1927. And lock up your wine because there's a drunk pig on the loose. The movie? Sunrise. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch today. Um, on this episode, we'll be talking about the F.W. Murnau silent film, Sunrise. Um Really interesting film if you've not seen it. But before we get into that, um, we were going to talk a little bit about the reaction to last week's episode. And even before that, I want to remind everybody out there that if you're in Los Angeles, we are going to be doing a live show at the Alamo Draft House coming up in just a couple of weeks. You can go to alamodrafthouse.com to get tickets. But Amy, tell us what this show is going to be about. It's called Raging Pagan because our live show takes place right at the end of the vernal equinox. The Grand Festival of Spring, of, of life versus death. So we are going to be watching some pagan horror films. We're going to talk about Wicker Man, and we are going to talk about Midsommar. Yes. And we're, we're going to have a very special drink, by the way, that sounds really delicious. I'm very excited about that. Uh, but if you are coming to the show, definitely watch Midsommar, because I think that's going to take up a, a lot of our conversation. Um, and Amy... Um, you know, I was actually on a very interesting podcast this week that I thought our audience might actually like. I was on a show called Murder Squad. Uh, it's a podcast that's incredibly popular, talks about true crime. You might know one of the hosts because he was actually one of our guests for Silence of the Lambs, Paul Holes. And each week they go through uh, a case, and they were both involved uh, in the Golden State Killer case. Um, I went on to talk about a documentary that I really loved called uh, Murder on a Sunday Morning. Um, so it's a really interesting conversation. We kind of talk about it from a, a legal 
and historical perspective. Uh, but check out Murder Squad. I think uh, it kind of ties in nicely to what we talk about here. And again, uh, Paul Holes, just a fascinating guy. And as a matter of fact, the episode I'm on, they get some new information about the Golden State Killer. So I'm there as they are reacting to uh, what has recently transpired about him. Um, wow, fair enough. And if we're talking about yeah. other podcasts that we just did, I want to mention again that um, my podcast on Jane Austen just came out. Yes. It is called What's the Tea on Jane Austen? It is time to the uh, release of Emma, and it talks about a lot of it is the hidden politics in Emma, who Jane Austen, who was a rebellious figure quietly in her day in all of the ways that she could without getting arrested, buried political ideas in the story of Emma and just who was Jane Austen and why is there this fight over her legacy and her identity that rages? If you want to hear about fights, man, they put her face on the British pound note a couple years ago and it caused a huge uproar with death threats. I mean, it's crazy that Jane Austen is a polarizing figure today and yet she is and God bless her because it means we're still talking about her. So that podcast is called Zoom. It's a really short, very quick little history podcast. Take a listen. I love it. I love the first season of that. So, Amy, let's talk about people's reaction to MASH. I can on, honestly say that uh, based on the reaction that I saw online, people agreed with us. This is a movie that should not be on the AFI list. People don't uh, particularly care for this movie. Not in the sense that it's a bad film, but in the sense that it shouldn't be um, held to such a high standard. It's not, it's not worthy of its placement on this list. It was handily voted down by the Facebook group, which is interesting because as Michael Curley, who creates these polls every week that are really great, where he's sort of polling people about what they think about movies on the list, he created a poll in January that said, well, listen, if we only gave one spot on the list of AFI to an Altman film, who would it be? The winner was MASH. Back in January, everybody's like, MASH, that's the best film. And I think everybody rewatched it and they're like, oh God, what have we done? MASH is definitely not going on the list. Um, the second uh, ranked winner was Nashville. And then after that was Gosford Park, McCabe and Miss Miller, The Player, and Shortcuts. And I will say, I just rewatched Shortcuts last week. I think that movie's great. I oh, think it yeah. really holds up. We're just going to do a lot of horse trading with this Altman. But it was fascinating to watch people wrestle with how they feel about Altman. You know, um, one comment that I thought was really interesting is Spencer Kamen. He said, I saw MASH on the big screen with, the, with an audience about two years ago. It looked fantastic, but for a comedy, the audience barely laughed. He said the only person who got a lot of laughs in the film was the Colonel Blake scenes. Oh, really? Yeah, because I know sometimes we talk about, like, is a comedy funnier in a theater? And so it's fascinating to me that Spencer was there in a theater and nobody was laughing. Oh, interesting. Jeffrey also then asked, you know, I'm curious to hear from fellow veterans who loved this film. And Rob Nichol... And Jen J. Walker says, my dad was a Vietnam War vet and he loved the movie. Uh, he loved it so, so much. He said it reminded him of his old friends. Um, and I think that there's something about that, that camaraderie. And I wonder if the TV show and the movie get, again, kind of mixed together. Because I think the TV show is so beloved. And the movie, it's hard to separate the two. It's true. I mean, I think that there's an argument to be made that should be made because I'm not the person to make it, that people who are veterans who have served, especially people who, as somebody else pointed out in the thread, were drafted, which would have yeah. happened for a lot of people in Vietnam. This is a very different film to them. It's a lot more it's a lot more credible and realistic, and it makes you laugh at something that you went yeah. through that you didn't necessarily enjoy, which I need to say up front. Like, yeah, I can't relate to that. And so I'm glad that people pointed out that perspective. Also, Devin had something he wanted to say. Oh, yeah. It was just that um, MASH, the TV show in particular, uh, my mom and stepdad are both uh, doctors, nurse practitioner, yeah. and 
they they relate to it on the level that that's the kind of sense of humor you sort of have to have in that kind of situation where you're dealing with, you know, a potential for death uh, at all times, that there's almost no other way to deal with it than that kind of black comedy. So for them, uh, the film mash in particular was was huge, but also the TV show. And that, that kind of extended to how they felt about a, a variety of things, House and ER and all that sort of stuff. As long as it had black comedy, they really kind of went with it because that was true to their experience of working in those kinds of places. I love that. And also, Jeffrey goes on to say that, you know, to him as a veteran, that Dr. Strangelove really nails the insanity of the bureaucracy, but that, you know, to his Vietnam buddies, Platoon felt the most authentic to them. And he's a submariner, so he loves Das Boot. But that when he was in a boot camp, one of his commanders talked exactly like um, Full Metal Jacket. And then it really freaked him out. It's, oh, interesting. Yeah, which led to an interesting conversation about people saying that they think their commanders were influenced by movies to talk more like a crazy, angry person, that the movies made their boot camp commanders more crazy. It was a really wow. interesting week in the Facebook threads. And then I want to end from something from Drew Cartwright DeMello. He says, you know what? If you want to see another great Sally Kellerman film, he loves the film Back to School. He says he watched oh, Back to School like a hundred times when he was a kid. And that Sally Kellerman carries herself with so much poise and dignity in that film that it was really jarring to see how she was treated in MASH. And he's happy to vote this one off the list. Well, I appreciate that. And I'd love to see Back to School on this list any day. <laughs> <laughs> and can I just say before we leave this uh, topic that, you know, I am kind of the resident Altman fan yeah. of the Unspooled crew here. I do not like MASH. Is one one Altman <laughs> movie I have never cared for, no matter how many times I've gone back to it. But the correct answer to which one should be on this list, it's California Split every time. I'm very excited. I got to watch that. I just got Ace in the Hole, which is another Devin oh, recommend. So I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah. I just watched that on a Devin recommendation. It's a fantastic movie. <laughs> well, um, let's talk a little bit more about what we have coming up this week, which is the silent film, Sunrise. Uh, I never had seen it, but I wanted to see uh, if people had a guess on what it was about. But before we get into that, I want to remind people that you can rock your unspooled merch wherever you go. Head to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. And if you are an artist out there, if you design something for us, we can host it in our store. You'll get a cut of that. It's really kind of amazing. Uh, it's a really great thing. We've done it in many ways for uh, How Did This Get Made? And the shirts are always fantastic. So if you're a designer out there, Submit it to T Public. We'll get you. Uh, we'll get you a part of the pie here. It's, it's all about that. And Amy, speaking about part of the pie, uh, we have something actually very important coming up this week. Um, so, for this show to work and function, we have to understand who you all are listening to the show, and um, it's very important for you guys to do us a solid. The reason why this show is free, and the reason why we're able to uh, keep this whole thing running, is to hear what you want to hear who you are listening to the show. And that's why we have an ad uh, survey that we'll be uh, asking you to fill out and give you the uh, the address in a second. But I'm really imploring you, if you listen to this show on the reg, fill us out. This is not about taking your information. It's not about putting you on a list. It's not about- I promise there's not a question like, are you now or have you ever been a communist? We're yes. not going to pull a Hollywood blacklist here. No, this is actually so important for us because uh, the show lives and dies by ad sales and, and making sure people know what we're selling to you. So it's about the products you want to hear, who you are, and all that sort of stuff. So again, I can't say it uh, with any more- uh, emphatic nature, but uh, please, 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 please take a couple of minutes. It's quick. It's easy. It really is so, so simple. And let us know who you are listening to the show. It would mean the world to us. It's always one of those things where uh, whenever we ask, we get a tepid response. And I'm asking you guys, 
to step it up here. The address uh, for this um, is uh, podsurvey.com slash unspooled. That's podsurvey.com slash unspooled. Again, Amy's begging you. I'm begging you. It will take uh, no time at all. Um, but this actually really, really makes a difference to us. Yeah, we'd super appreciate it. I mean, I feel like I know one thing about you guys already, which is that you're all very, very smart. And if I know a second thing, it's all that you're you're very, very cool. But this survey will tell us slightly more than that, and it will be incredibly helpful. So I hope that the third thing I know is that you guys are really all awesome and don't mind taking a couple minutes to fill this out. That's podsurvey.com slash unspooled. But with that said, after MASH, I think we get to have a little antidote, right? I think the film we're going to play now is the anti-MASH. It's called Sunrise. It is a favorite film of mine, but let's hear what people who haven't seen the film before think it's about. Sunrise is definitely a Kurt Russell uh, buddy cop movie featuring giant bales of cocaine. Sunrise is a precursor to Groundhog's Day where a Cary Grant type has to relive Easter over and over again to prevent a magic pig from becoming his Easter ham. I think Sunrise is similar to Cinderella in that a pig farmer keeps going to a club because to see this flapper girl and their nights always end at the sunrise when he has to go back to work. I think Sunrise is about a group of vampires terrorizing the city, but can they get back inside their coffin? Before Sunrise. Uh, I think that Sunrise is a vampire space movie where the vampires go to space with astronauts stowed away because they never had Sunrise. I love uh, the Kurt Russell uh, answer because that reminds me of one of the favorite films I had as a kid. Tequila Sunrise, Mel Gibson, Kurt Russell, Michelle Pfeiffer. Hot, steamy, very cool. I would actually watch this Cary Grant movie. Can you imagine if if every time he dies, it, di- it ends with a pig dying and being turned into ham? How traumatic. I mean, that is the best combination of Easter joy and also bloodletting, which is fairly pagan, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, Amy, let's get into it. Let's find out what Sunrise is actually about, and let's unspool it. The year is 1927. Charles Lindbergh completes his first solo fight across the Atlantic in his plane, The Spirit of St. Louis. Work begins on carving the presidential sculptures on Mount Rushmore. Ford replaces the Model T with the Model A, and it becomes an insta-hit. Pan American Airways is formed. The first transatlantic telephone call is placed from New York City to London. Audiences are watching The Great Gatsby, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, The Jazz Singer, and today's film, Sunrise. It comes in at number 82 on the AFI's top 100 list, and it didn't even make previous AFI lists. So that's really interesting. Number 82. You know, Amy, obviously it's a silent film, so it's hard to play a clip, but I wanted to play a little bit of the soundtrack because Sunrise is Fox's first ever film with a recorded score. It was the first film released using uh, the Fox movie tone system, and it's the first professionally produced feature film with an actual soundtrack. So let's hear a little bit of that. All right, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? 
Sunrise, a movie that, oh my God, I am a guest that it's only 82 on this list and wasn't on it before because it is one of my personal favorites. It is directed by a man named Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau. He uh, is better known by the name F.W. Murnau. He's a German director who is invited over here and he makes this film. He's given carte blanche. Before we even have Orson Welles be given carte blanche to make Citizen Kane, he is given carte blanche by the Fox agency, by the Fox studio, to make Sunrise, a movie that he bases on a short story called The Excursion to Tilsit. It is a very, very simple story. A man is married to a very sweet village wife. They live in a little village town. It's very rustic. It's very rural. They have chickens. He falls in love with a woman from the city. The woman from the city shows up and sat and convinces him to kill his wife so they can run off to the city together. And yet, he can't do it. He and his wife take this boat ride where he's supposed to, po to push her off the edge and drown her. Instead, she catches on to it. He's wrecked by guilt. They run to the city. They have this adventure. And what's so interesting about this film and the way it's structured is they reconcile right at the beginning. And then the rest of the movie is this romance of a couple falling back in love. It's incredibly simple, but the real special thing about Sunrise is that it is directed by Murnau with all of this, like, passion and visual interest visual this he was really interested in this idea of like putting a psych the psychology of a character on screen using visual techniques using film techniques and so it is to me one of the greatest examples of what silent film era was capable of what we were able to do by telling stories with images you know and and talking about Murnau um it's interesting that Sunrise is on this list because I would argue the film that people most closely associate with him is Nosferatu, right? Now, um, maybe it's, again, that whole world of AFI, like what's a foreign film, what's not a foreign film. But, you know, Nosferatu is a film that comes out in 1922, and this one comes out in 1927. And um, it's a really interesting film. I fell in love with this movie. Ah! Like, I've been Absolutely. hoping this, my, this entire oh. show, the entire last like 89, 90 movies we've talked about. I've been waiting to hear you say those words. I was like, this movie is up my alley. And I know that we've like wrestled or I've wrestled with silent film. You know, where does it all fall together? I thought that from an artistic standpoint, this trumped every <sighs> silent film that we've seen. I think visually it was stunning. I thought that the acting was amazing. I thought the use or lack of use of um, the narrative cards blew me away. I also thought that the way that he uh, in, used vocal elements in the soundtrack or, you know, in the uh, the recorded, I guess it's a soundtrack. I, you know, I don't know how to quantify it because it's not dialogue, but he would kind of pump that in. Everything was so innovative and alive and the story was so compelling yet simple. I was all in and I think... In watching it, and I want to break it all down with you. I'm sorry I'm talking a lot, but I'm just saying that there is something about telling a really dramatic story that captured my imagination a little bit more than a lead character who is going through comedic events. Now, that's not to say that Charlie Chaplin films don't have depth and drama. They do. But this film just connected to me more. I think I just connected with the drama of these characters. Yes, exactly. It's the simplest, simplest, simplest drama you could ever have. You know, a love triangle. It's not even trying for depth in terms of, like, who these characters are. You know, there's no. one woman who's very, very good. There's one woman who's very, very evil. And then there's this dumb guy in between, this big jock. You know, and I didn't name the characters early on. I should have. I mean, they don't have names. It's the man, man. the wife, and the woman from the city. And they're played by um, George O'Brien as the man. He's this guy who is no more as, like, being... 
a huge jock when he was in the military. Uh-huh. He was like the lightweight or no middleweight boxing champion. So he was known in all of his films up until Sunrise as being this guy who just like carried women around. He was like, I'd carry women around. That was what I did. I was really good at it. I like that. And um, you have Margaret Livingston. She's playing the woman from the city. And she, to me, I love her. She's on the yacht. Um, the yacht that we've talked about earlier in the season where um, Thomas Ince was shot. You know, the oh, yacht story yes, with like, William yes. Randolph Hearst and everybody. She's on that boat. She's one of the witnesses. Um, that's the one from the city. And then Janet Gaynor. Really just the most open, big, beautiful, childlike face of the entire silent era. She was like 21 here when she makes this movie. And, you know, he does something interesting with Janet Gaynor. You know, she's known at the time for having this beautiful, flowing, dark hair. And here it is in the film in a tight blonde wig in a way that I read was to kind of hide her sexuality to make her a little bit more um I guess desexualized and and maybe to a certain extent uh like the put upon wife here she does look a little bit more dowdy than the girl from the city like she doesn't look as glamorous she looks you know um a little downtrodden as a matter of fact the first time I saw her I was like oh is she the maid in the house I didn't realize (laughs) that she was the wife, because she was so kind of put together and serving food, I didn't quite understand it in those first couple of moments. Yeah, that that wig is maybe one of the most controversial hair pieces in all of film history. I mean, that wig, to me, was as big of a flashpoint as, as you know how much I hate Constance Wu's wig in, in Hustlers. Yes. Hate that wig. Hate it so much. I mean, the only wig that's as bad is Possibly Janet Gaynor's in Sunrise. You know, it looks so artificial. It's so dowdying. And Murnau was like, all these critics got mad, you know. It was a big deal at the time because Janet Gaynor was this brand new ingenue who's just taking the world by storm. Like, 1927 is her year. They're like, Janet Gaynor, why she got that fucking wig on, though, you know. And he was like, y'all don't understand. I had to submerge her physical beauty is what he kept saying. Well, you know, because I had you... to make her look like this dowdy wife. And she's this 21-year-old five-foot-tall, beautiful girl. What am I going to do? You know, and before we get too far away from it, I just want to go back to character names um, because it's so simplistic here. You know, the man, the wife, the woman from the city, the maid, the photographer, the barber, the manicure girl, the obtrusive gentleman, the ogling gentleman. Those are the characters in this entire film. That is it. And it and there's something so uh, interesting about seeing that list at the top of the film you just see it and it it just it takes away everything excess about this film and i think what you're left with in a weird way is this position where you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of these characters they're not really defined characters they are characters that i think he wants you to really relate with because one of the opening um titles is this song of the man and his wife is of no place in every place. You might hear it anywhere and at any time. So I think he's basically saying, this is something that we all have felt. You know, for wherever the sun rises and sets in the city's turmoil or under the open sky on the farm, life is much the same, sometimes bitter, sometimes sweet. And, you know, that's how we get into the film. This idea that, like, ultimately, is the grass greener? You know, and that that's, that's the question it's kind of asking. And... And I think we all get caught up in that idea. And this movie is about re-embracing the grass that you have. Yeah, there's a lot of grass, man. A lot there's of grass. A lot of grass in that village. Not <laughs> much grass in the city. But yeah, and I and to your point, I'm so glad you read out that opening title in a film with very few titles, very few words. Yeah. Because I think he's basically like, yo, here's the theme of my film. 
Just know this. Life is sometimes bitter. Life is sometimes sweet. We, all of us, feel the emotions of these characters. You know, we're all reflected in bits of them. Go forth, and now I'm going to have a lot of fun and do this as as well as I can. And because of that setup, it allows the title cards to get more and more infrequent. To the end of the film, they're aren't really cards at all. You get really caught up in it. And I know we talked about how, you know, Chaplin had this battle about how few he could use. And that was really impressive to me. The amount of motion he could convey and storytelling. This is a deeper story because you're not creating comical moments. There aren't these set pieces per se. I mean, there are, you know, dancing and the pig is a set piece. We'll get into the pig. We have a great uh, expert today. <laughs> but um, but for the most part, the film just kind of exists very much like a film that you would see today. It just happens to me that no one's speaking. You know, yeah, or they're, and, they're speaking, we just don't know what they're saying. And this idea of sort of an everywhere. I mean, even the film kind of takes place in this everywhere. The village looks pretty German. You know, you've got these mm-hmm. thatched roof, very triangular yes. houses. A touch of maybe German expressionism in there, which is, of course, where Marnot came from, you know, doing Nosferatu. You know, that famous shot of the shadow fingers. Yes. But also when you go to the city, I mean, the signs are... In English, you know, it looks like an American sort of city. It doesn't look like New York. It doesn't look like anywhere, but it doesn't look European. It, it kind of takes place in a an urban setting that really is in every city. But it felt a little Jules Verne to me when they were in this carnival setting, which was, you know, um, where they go to kind of have this wonderful night out. Um, those sets were so intense. And I was, you know, doing some research and it was like, you know, these were built for the film. They cost $200,000, and that's in 1927. It was used again, these sets, in other films like Four Sons. Um, But if you adjusted the inflation, you know, basically these sets cost almost $3 million. And they're really just background. They're not... They are not, you know, our characters are standing in front of them. They are they are set dressing. Yeah, Murnau is like, you're going to give me a blank check? Okay, then. Blank check pod. This is the Murnau uh, challenge. Ha, do you guys hear me out there? But now, did you feel like that city looked a little bit like Metropolis or had some sort of like Jules Verne quality to it? It didn't, it felt a little bit different. Yeah, it's an impossible city. Right. right? This is not a city you could ever visit. It, it's like... It has kind of the universal elements of it, I think, in in terms of that it's not pinpointed any place. It's Mm -hmm. not like there's a version of this where, say, you were pretending they were in Paris. You know, you'd go and you'd see the Eiffel Tower. Or maybe they're in England and you go and you see Big Ben. And here you just see something you can't see anywhere, but you're kind of dying to go to it. Like, I love the city in this, to be honest. And it's, you know, so fantastical. It's like layered and layered. It, It seems impossible. Like when they first go through that tunnel and all of a sudden there's... You know, there's fireworks and there are roller coaster rides and there's airplanes. You know, the thing that it is closest to anything that I've ever been to is Kazakhstan. Oh, really? A thousand percent. Oh, my God. This really could be Kazakhstan. Because, like, in the middle of Kazakhstan, in this vast emptiness, you know, there's a city that used to be called Astana. They just changed the name, like, mm-hmm. last year uh, to reflect the outgoing dictator slash president. Um but they built the city out of, like, grassland, so there was, like, nothing there. And then because the weather in Kazakhstan is so crazy, it all takes place inside of malls, like, most of the life of yeah. what you live in. So when I was in Kazakhstan, I went to this big mall that was in a giant yurt. And it's, like, a seven-foot-tall yurt where there is crazy roller coasters on the inside, theme parks. Everywhere you walk, there's, like, rides happening, like, swirling by your head. But there's also a beach wow. with real sand. 
that they import from the Maldives and then restaurants everywhere. Right. But I've never been in a place that disorienting. And then when I saw Sunrise again, I hadn't seen it since I was in Kazakhstan. I was like, oh, my God. This actually, like, this expressionist world is maybe real in one part of the entire globe. Well, and I love that this land felt familiar but foreign. I mean, even the fact that the trolley cars coming through the middle of the woods, like, it's such a beautiful image. But again, it's a simplistic idea. Like, here you are. You're getting on a trolley car. You're leaving this wooded area, and you're coming into this other world. And, you know, meanwhile, we've been shown time and time again that I would take the train every single time or the trolley car every single time. Why would you go out on a boat? That boat ride seems dangerous. And, you know, uh, (laughs) the train is there. The train is so easy to get to. Um, But, no, it just felt like there were heightened things and things, again, that we could all relate to. You know, you take the train into the city. You are trying to escape this little area that you're from. And um, I just was really caught up in that story. And I was caught up in the story of, you know, this thing that we are always are wrestling with, I feel like, in movies, which is um, dissatisfaction in your relationship, right? Whether it's the mumblecore world where everyone's in a house for the summer and we got to get to all of our problems to the better versions of that of, you know, Big Chill or Seven Year Itch. We are always and have always been dealing with this idea of wanting something better like seeing being seduced by something and what i love about this movie is the seduction part or the idea of like wanting to get out of this marriage is such a small part and the movie really celebrates love and reinvigorating the love between two people by by having fun and connecting and and just you know finding those reasons why we do the things that we do in the first place. And we forget those things, whether it's, you know, a passion for a career, whether it's passion for art, it passion for love, you know, whatever it is, like it, it's a movie about getting out of your head. And I love that concept. I really very rarely see that be more than just a third act, like twist, you know, like, Oh, now we're back. You know, this movie really celebrates the love and passion of something that existed before it. A thousand percent. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I love that you pointed out the trolley shot really early on. Because that's one of those moments in this film where he gives you that choice. Mm. Do you want to... Just accept the idea that this magical trolley that takes you straight to the city in about 15 minutes Mm -hmm. is right here by the dock of this very rural village. Will you accept this or not? 
you just should just do right. it. You know, this is not a film for people who are plot nitpickers. It's almost no. anti the over plotted stories that kind of drive me nuts. The like, oh, cinema students, here's what's wrong with Sunrise is completely beyond the point. Can you even imagine? Well, I think, and this is something we come back to time and time again. What is amazing about this list is, for the most part, I would say 75% of the movies that we talk about are a straight A to B to C narrative, but done exceptionally well. It's like, there's not like, there's not many inceptions on this list. And not to say there shouldn't be, but when a simple plot is done well, it's incredibly effective. And I think it has a long lasting potential because there is no like, oh, the twist. It's more like, no, no, the story. We're here for the story. A good story can be told throughout time with different, you know, things that you hang on it. Right? I mean, I sometimes I feel like we've gotten confused as to what makes a good movie. Mm -hmm. And when I list some checkpoints here, it's not that like if you have this checkpoint and not that checkpoint, you have a good movie or a bad movie. But I think there is a tendency in like the post-Nolan era to be like, if it's beautiful and incredibly complicated, it makes me feel dumb until I figure it out. Then I feel really, really smart. That is what a great movie is. And I like that Murnau deflates that idea, you know, a century before that even yeah. happens with this idea of like, here's a simple, simple, simple film. And what I want to do is I want to focus on the cinema of language. This is something I, I talk this. about so much with my boyfriend, you know, the cinema, like what is it about film that makes film different from every other medium? One of the easiest insults you can say to a film is, oh, that's just a filmed play. And right. Renaud is a guy who comes from the theater. He also comes from having like a background in art, art history. He does not want to make a film that at all resembles a play. You know, he wants to be very aware of what is this medium and what makes it absolutely special. And so what can you show here that you can't show in plays? You can show things like the interior of the mind. You can have zooms into the character's brain where you start to see what they're thinking, where you see the woman from the city as this superimposition, putting her arms all over the man's body to remind him that she's there. She's this presence he can't turn away from. He does things here in this film that were impossible to see any other time before this. I love that use of film imagery. And going back to like my comparison to Metropolis, I think what this movie does really effectively is, is it takes these cool images and this stuff that we're talking about, the Nolanification of things. And I don't want to like shit on Nolan. I love Christopher Nolan. I'm just saying, but it takes all I'll those. Shit on him a little bit. All right. <laughs> it takes all those cool flourishes and then transplants it in a really simple story, which I think makes it oddly more effective. It wasn't a movie about like, let's have like this cool city and let's have these interesting sets and nothing else. It's like, no, let's use all those cool tools that we have and put it in something that is a lot more basic. And I mean, and the, the fact that he was able to do it so um, simply and effortlessly, it just, it feels uh, so organic. It doesn't take you out of it. I mean, the way he did it too was doing it in camera. Like the camera would shoot one image at the side of the frame and then blacking out the rest. And then they expose the film and they would put the exposed film back into the camera and shoot again, blocking out the area that already had an image on it. So it was a very complex process to get, you know, the woman, you know, literally getting in his, you know, in his brain and kind of rubbing on him or, or seeing, you know, their life before or what he was imagining or what the city was like this, this imagination. It was so yeah, wonderful. I love even just like the music cue when he goes to meet the woman from the city. Actually, two music cues that mm -hmm. I want to play. You, you have this image of 
the woman from the city outside his peaceful home where Jenny Gaynor's trying to just make him soup, trying to feed him, mm-hmm. trying to give him bread, trying to give him nourishment. And the woman outside the city is sort of doing the siren call, you know, whistling through the window. And he, almost like he's hypnotized, almost like it's a monster movie, trudges through the mud to go find her in this amazing tracking shot. When you look at this tracking shot, he's going through a field, over a fence, behind some trees, around some trees. He's going in several directions. It's not even just left to right or right to left. It's like left, right, back to left, yes. over it. And he's walking in this way that's expressing his inner emotions, you know. The story is, is that Murnau put weights in George O'Brien's yes. shoe so that Led, he would right? walk with this heaviness. Let's listen to the trudge. And then he finds this woman from the city. And they have what I can really only describe as a clench. I feel like you read in tabloids, they were in a passionate clench. Yes. The tabloid photographers found them in a clench. And I was like, clench, okay, I don't really know what a clench is completely. And this is a clench, right? Have you ever seen a clench that's clenchier? Then she pitches this idea of him that they run away to the city. And here is where he's just stepping 1,000% into the fantastical. She turns the moon basically into the city. She makes him visualize everything. And you start to have it come to life for him. You hear the noise. so much because you have these stripes everything's weaving it's really topsy-turvy almost drunk feeling well it makes the city feel like i think we always are trying to capture like what the city feels especially to people that the first time they're there like you know whether it's a movie like big business or like lily tomlin bet midler like you know oh my gosh you're watching people come in and out of the door straight to big business i don't know why (laughs) i love that movie i mean it's a good movie um but there is so much about like trying to show like the busyness of a city and you and and the dizziness of the city. And I think that this actually does it in such an interesting way. It literally is dizzying. You have the band playing on one side. You have people dancing on the other. And then these, um, not flappers, but this, you know, this kind of rotating circular motion of, of cloth or something. It's, it's constantly, this movie is always playing with your perspective. And I think keeping you off balance, whether it is using these forced perspective shots, whether it is using these superimposed shots, it, it, I think it's putting you in a mindset for how the characters are viewing something, the bigness of the city, you know, the 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 craziness that goes on in your mind when you are uh, you weighed down by something that is, you know, uh, kind of destroying you from the inside. It's like this movie is constantly making you feel like the character. You're you're you are the character, and yeah. I think that that's again like. I know when people talk about like silent film, they're like, yo, we people got so afraid when the train, you know, the first silent movie, when the train was coming at the screen, they all ran out of the theater. And that's what this movie has a a tendency to do. It's like you find yourself in this character. You 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 are always through their eyes. That's exactly it. It's like POV without being POV. Yes. It's not POV in the literal sense where I'm like holding up my hands like I'm hardcore Henry if anybody saw that movie like yeah. a couple years ago. It's POV in terms of you feel that churn in your belly. Yeah. You know that that sickness like oh I kind of want to have a hangover and go to the city and get crazy yeah. with this woman. And then he's even using the title cards as sparingly as he uses them to also create this like visual effect. You know the woman's like well we can 
can go to the city. But what about your wife in capital letters is what he says. You know, and my wife. And then she suggests, couldn't she get drowned? And he goes uh, from the big size of the and my wife to the drowning letters sinking and I mean, dissolving. I want to talk about that for just a second, just to kind of put, you know, a, a big ribbon on it. That is one of the coolest things I've seen in silent film. And you, and you, can, and you can maybe speak to that I'm more. I'm so happy right oh, now. Oh, I love it so much. Like you can maybe speak to it more than I can, but I've never seen anything like that in the sense that the, the actual words are animated. You know, like when, when that, the way that the title card came up even is presented almost like dialogue. And then the words have this energy and action to them. I, I've just never seen that in silent film. I was like, it, from a directing standpoint, I, I really, and I, 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 I'm sorry to repeat this, but I think it is the best directed silent film that I have seen uh, on this list. And the fact that it's 82 blows my mind. The fact that it wasn't there in 97 blows my mind. Because it's so incredibly innovative. Now, yes, have I ever heard of this movie before it was on this list to be an assignment? Absolutely not. I don't know why. Uh, but... It should be it should be in a major, major way. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a tiny story, and I kinda of wanted to talk about this later, mm-hmm. but you know, let's just start talking about it now. You know, if I was to ask you, like, what's the first film to win an Oscar? Mm-hmm. To win the best picture Oscar. Titanic. The, I wish. The answer that most people would give would would be wings, you know, this Clara Bow right, film. Yes. Because it has the trivia factoid of being mm-hmm. the number one best picture, except it wasn't the only winner. You know, when Wings won Best Picture at the Oscars, they actually had Two Oscar pictures. Wings uh, won Outstanding Picture, which then became Best Picture. And didn't Thomas Hayden Church also win for Best Performance in that? Yes, he did. He was so good no, in you're right, Wings. Paul. I love doing this so show with you. So good in Wings. <laughs> but Louis B. Mayer, who invented the Oscars, and yeah. he invented them in part because he had this idea, you know, like the best way to handle filmmakers is to hang medals on them. And if you yes, give them, quote, cups and them... awards, they will kill themselves to produce what I want. Yes. Make people fight over art. What a great idea. Great idea. So he creates the Oscars and he thinks, you know what? This industry is really different. We shouldn't just have one best picture. We should divide this up. We'll have one that's like the big... Hollywood kind of picture, the big mm-hmm. studio American picture, which is Wings. And then he had the second award for the best unique and artistic picture, which is basically like the Art House Picture Award. Who is the most artistic? Who is the most boundary pushing in terms of their art? And that went to Sunrise. Which is amazing. And it's a conversation we're still having to this day about the Academy Awards. A thousand Awards. percent. It's basically like if you combine the Academy Awards and the Spirit Awards. Right? Yes. But to a certain extent, we are also fighting this battle in the actual Academy Awards, like, should a movie like Avengers Endgame be somehow, you know, represented in an award that's not competing against, you know, little women, but is competing against, you know, essentially like a popcorn category? We talked about that this year. That was a big debate. Like, should there be this other yeah. thing? Should there be segregation? Is it a playing is an equal playing field. And I honestly believe now as we've watched more of these movies, talked more about the Academy Awards and even had the conversation about, you know, should female directors have a category? I'm believing that segregation in these awards is kind of necessary because we're not going to self-regulate 
we shouldn't just have like a, a niche awards. We should maybe try to open it up a little bit too. I, I don't know. There's something about that that I really I like, and I love the fact that this is the movie that did that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that is exactly what the Oscars thought they should be. Mm-hmm. Except then they gave these two awards out. Wings got its award. Sunrise got its award, and they consider them both absolutely equal at the time. But then going forward, when they decided to only present an award for Outstanding Picture and then named it Best Picture, mm-hmm. they decided retroactively that the winner was Wings, that the first ever winner was Wings. It wow. kind of scuttled Sunrise from history. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, Sunrise also is a movie that is not a hit. So that award is very different than a lot of the Academy Awards that we've talked about. You know, Academy Awards, uh, a lot of the winners often, you know, are box office successes, maybe not critical successes. And this is one where it was a critical success, but not a box office success. And that's because it it is kind of following in the footsteps of the jazz singer. Um, and I think people are going to know we want people to speak in our movies or, you know, or something like that. I feel like you're exactly right. Because, you know, as you said in the intro, 1927 is the year that j- the jazz singer comes out. And actually, at these special Oscars, they gave the jazz singer a special prize for basically saying, like, thank you for giving us sound. Also, Charlie Chaplin got an honorary Oscar that first one. Oh, wow. And I think it's because, I mean, he was still making films, of course, tons of them. And I think they thought he's just going to win everything. He was nominated for everything in the first round. And they're like, ah, he's going to win. Let's just pull him out and give him his own special Oscar. Oh, wow. We can't compete against that guy. But that said... You're exactly right. What happens is, you know, in that clip that we played about them imagining the city, you heard car horns and stuff, mm-hmm. right? You heard voices. Yeah. Because this is done on early sound on film. It's not a talkie. You know, the characters never talk. But Murnau was able to have a soundtrack that he really wanted, create the score that went along, and then have sound effects that w- that went on tape so you could always hear what he wanted you to hear. So it's this hybrid, really, of basically one of the last big grandiose silent films with a touch of sound woven in. It kind of was shocking, yeah. Yeah, it comes out, and then two weeks later, the jazz singer comes out. And everyone's like, okay, okay, you were fine, but the jazz singer, though. And I think that's a lot of why it wasn't a hit. Well, you know what, let's just actually play a little bit of that mix of score and and sound. Yeah, I want, I pulled the traffic kiss. Mm-hmm. And this is after they have just reconciled as a couple. They've fallen back in love again. They've gone to this wedding together and really renewed their vows. You know, the husband promising to know, to do what a husband should do, which in the vows that you hear in the ceremony, you might think they're a little bit patriarchal now. You know, it's like she's young and inexperienced. Guide her and love her. Keep her and protect her from all harm. But he really he realizes how badly he failed. And then when the when the priest asks this couple who's getting married at this church, you know, wilt thou love her? He breaks down, they sob, she comforts him, and then they have this kiss, and then they walk across this crowded street that's covered in cars. And what happens is instead of you know how like the woman from the city made the city alive for the man, yeah. now that he's back in love with his wife, she makes the garden, you know, this whole field and village alive for him. And so he doesn't see the traffic. They're walking across, they kiss. And here, I think, is a great example of the use of sound and music in the silent film. I love that. It's it uh it's such a 
again, a fun way to watch um, a silent film. And I wondered, you know, as we kind of update these um, films or, you know, have like, live accompaniment, why that's never really been put in when someone decides they're going to rescore a film because it it's atmospheric. It's not, you know, taking away from the, from the message or, you know, it's not, it's not diluting the art of it, but it's interesting. Obviously this was put in at the time, but I was just wondering, Oh, I, I wonder why people haven't tried to do that when they've remastered them. I wonder, I was thinking a lot about our conversation when we did the gold rush with the mm. composer of that film. And then I was also thinking so much about singing in the rain. Mm. When we were when I was getting ready to talk about this with you, because I'm so glad we did Singing in the Rain really early on in this show. I feel like it lays out that transition oh, from absolutely. sound to silent so clearly. And one of the things that you saw when they turned it in when they turned silent film into sound was that they had to put the cameras in these boxes. They had to keep the camera square and walled off and hidden away so that the sound of the film didn't make it onto the soundtrack. And it's such a bummer because here in 1927. You see Renault being like, we can do these tracking shots, yeah. though. If we have a limber camera, we can move it in all these directions. We can go up and down and around. Here's what the camera is capable of. And it's this last really ambitious argument for what film could be. you know. And I think that's almost what the studio wanted him to make when, when Fox invites him over, is they're thinking, can we make a new type of Hollywood? Are we going to be able to take this really talented filmmaker who the film that they had loved of his that they had done wasn't even Nosferatu. It was a film called The Last Laugh. Okay. Which if people haven't seen The Last Laugh, it's this amazing Murnau film. It's really tragic. And actually, I think there's a lot in there that feels really relevant. It's about this old man who is the doorman at a fancy hotel and he's very proud of himself and he's very proud of his uniform. He's always opening the door for fancy people and he considers himself, you know, hot shit. Yeah. And because he's old, he gets fired and he does not have a safety net and they give him a job back as the bathroom attendant and his humiliation at his new job is just the emotional power of that film yeah it's brutal it's absolutely heartbreaking then they had to tackle on this hollywood ending to make it cheerful which is polarizing I, i'm like make him happy it's fine yeah but william fox sees this and he's like this could be our new way like what if hollywood cinema wasn't hollywood cinema you know even by then there was this idea that a film American audiences wanted to see a film where characters told us who they were through action. You know, I leap, I rescue, I do this. You know, I'm, I am got a quip right here. I'm this daredevil. It was really plot-focused already, very much in the 20s. You see that in Charlie Chaplin films. You know, like, A to B to C. I'm going to yes. punch a monkey. I'm going to do whatever. And Fox was like, could we take the best of what Europe has right now and make it Hollywood? You know, figure out what this middle ground is. And because the film was a flop, the answer turned out to be... No. Well, they rein them in. They, yeah. they they don't look I mean, and in a weird way, there's part of me that I'm listening to what you're saying and I go, from a studio point of view, this is a middle step. Right? It's saying like we're almost going to do sound, but we are still committed to silent and this is not the full step over the precipice. This is like the, a middle moment. And I think what unfairly happened to Murnau, Murnau however you pronounce it, is that um, he's caught as someone who's making a really interesting film who's experimenting with this middle step in technology, but they would have, what they should have said was, no, 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 now continue to make movies, but we'll just go full on sound. Like just, just I feel like he got penalized yeah. for kind of, I think, being at the whim of a studio, not really fully committing to one area. It's true. And of course, he couldn't have made Sunrise Sound with the way the camera had to move. Right. You know, he couldn't have done it. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, 
But okay, could he have done it like in a year? No. No. Okay. No, you couldn't okay. get the cameras to move that well for seven or eight years. And by oh, that wow, time, okay. he was dead. Okay. Um, car crash, which is kind of ironic given all the car threats in this movie. But I think that makes Sunrise so valuable as almost this missing link that we find in the fossil record, right? I mean, it makes me think of, did you, wait, have you heard that story that whales come from wolves? Did you know this? No, what is that? This is like the new working theory in biology that the reason why we have air-breathing mammals is because wolves went back into the sea after they'd made it onto land. Wait, who is this theory by? (laughs) Scientists. Okay, just general scientists. No, I mean- I don't know if you know those about me, but I used to TA evolutionary anthropology when uh, I was at All right. I, all right. I'm here. I'm uh, here yeah. for this. Okay. But yeah, they they had this theory that, you know, when you look at the way, say, a dolphin spine moves, it yeah. moves like a land animal. The only way it makes sense is if land animals went back to the sea, that dolphins didn't evolve from fish. They evolved from like this animal that went back. And they finally found the fossil record of a kind of wolf fish. And they're able to say, like, yes, that is what happened. Wolves went back into the sea, and that's why we have air-breathing aquatic mammals. Yeah. So Sunrise is a wolf fish. Okay, well, look, I know a lot of stuff <laughs> is coming out of the sea. I was in a movie called Piranha 3 D, and at the end, Piranha could walk. So I believe anything because that movie was based in truth. Piranha 3D, maybe an exaggeration, but 3 D, that's when we really push forward. I absolutely forgot I was talking to an ichthyologist. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. All right, so this is interesting. Wolves going back in the water. I have a lot of questions, but that's for a different podcast. I understand that Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton are these influential geniuses who created, you know, a language of silent film and an audience for them and a timeless nature to them all. But this film, I think, is equally important for what it does from a filmmaking point of view. Like those creators, in my mind, we're very um, self-involved. It's almost it, they're on they're on the screen. They're doing the work. They are taking what they're doing and, and and finding ways to make it more interesting and challenging themselves. But there's something about this from a filmmaking point of view that I feel like needs to be really held up as a seminal work. No, I thousand percent agree. And you know, I wish that there was a world where we could talk a ton about German expressionism too, because I just find that so vital. And it's sad to me that we don't have a film on this list where we can get into it. You know? Yeah. Because there's this idea that German filmmakers are interested in the psyche, almost like a country is saying, what did we just do? What did we just go through all of this for? You know, people like F.W. Murnau, who was actually a veteran, he was a POD, POW. He was captured during World War One, And it was while he was in a prison that he joined this prisoner theater camp. And there's where he wrote his first film script. Yeah. And his art kind of came out of being a prisoner in a way, like they're very tied together for him, you know, like war, suffering, art creation. And I think you see that tone of darkness in this film for sure. I mean, he got really interested in psychology. I think that's why I can see somebody watching Sunrise and saying, oh, it's so reductive. The good girl's so good. The bad girl's so bad, which is a fair complaint, you know, but to to Timberlow, he was really interested in in, in exactly that, that psychology, you know, taking it to the bare psychology of what is good, what is bad, you know, like and pitting them against each other in a film. I mean, the whole film is like contrast. There's daylight, there's nighttime, there's city versus country. There's a black satin dress in the mud versus like the village clothes. Well, I mean, and he even, wants to stack all these things together because he's trying to get at something. And you watch it even in the performances. The performances are so uh, heavy handed. They're not 
uh, subtle. Like at points, they're beautiful. But, you know, when you watch the man, he literally, we talked about him having lead in his boots. He carries himself with the weight of the world. There's nothing about him that looks light. There's nothing. I was like, this guy's really showing his cards. But I think in a weird way, it's a little comedia to a certain extent. You know, it's kind of capturing that old style of entertainment. And and those were successful for a reason, you know. Um, yeah, and I mean, there's nothing really redeeming about the woman from the city. She's got this lovely pointed little fox face. She makes that old family polish her shoes. Yeah, she's not hiding at all who she is. And the thing is, I think this wouldn't work as well if it does, if not for the fact that the trickiest character, the wife, who's just good, you know, just innocence. If she wasn't played by Janet Gaynor, who makes that innocence seem fresh and mm. natural, I don't think it would work. Like if her innocence as a wife was played with that kind of heavy handedness of the evil of the wife, of the city girl and the sadness of the man, yeah. it'd be way too much. You know, if she was just like simpering and like, oh, look at me, I am a force of good. But there's something in the way Janet Gaynor plays her that feels absolutely honest right there's no artifice in that character i mean one of the Besides moments the bad wig. oh well one of my moments that got me was you know after this man tries to kill her and he chases her down and he kind of is trying to apologize for this through a very long chase scene he gives her a piece of bread and she's so tired and overwhelmed and she takes a bite of this bread she's hungry and then the immediate release of these tears like she goes from one extreme to the next it was such a beautiful performance it's such a subtle great observed moment of just her going into tears like she wants that bread but then she's also just falling apart it's just it's wonderful right. it's like like he's done something nice to her for the first yeah. time in a while and it breaks her and like what an yeah. unexpected reaction and then he gives her flowers a beat after that and that makes her cry even more I, I love that. And and so you have a film that, yes, is doing some very large, like, black and white style uh, choices, but at the same time also doing some very observed, lived-in emotional choices. So I think, you know, for me, I give over to the broad stroke, the girl from the city and the girl from the country, because we need to just quickly establish it. Who cares? It's He's being seduced. He could be seduced by the woman next door, ultimately. Yes, the city, but it's ultimately he's being seduced. Like, is the grass greener? It doesn't matter whose grass it is. And so I think- That's in right. Give yeah. Me all that grass. <laughs> but I mean, you know, in a silent film, you have to do that. I mean, very rarely in silent film that I've seen is there subtlety in character. I mean, you kind of have to just- Write it. I mean, in that scene that you're talking about, what I love about it that, you know, carries through is when she's on that train car and he's trying to get her to talk to him. Mm -hmm. To me, that is such a great depiction of shock, right? Yeah. When you think about a man who within that decade had seen war, you know, a decade earlier, he had seen people die. He had been in this prisoner of war camp. And I think he understands what traumatic shock is. And I think this... You're right. We've been giving a lot of credit to like 70s films for yeah. representing, you know, veteran horror and trauma. But I think there's something in her face right here and her numbness and her fear of touching him. She's not like hands up at my cheeks yeah. like, oh, keep away. She is almost dead and scared. And that to me feels so well observed as well. Like he. Yeah, as exaggerated as this is, I think he is truthful about people mm -hmm. at the core of it. And I don't know. I find her so moving. I just love Janet Gaynor so much. 
and I think Janet Gaynor loved her experience working with F.W. Murnau. I mean, like her and George O'Brien both said that they had such a special experience on set. That they made a pact to do anything that he asked of them uh, and including, you know, that final sequence, which, you know, we talked a lot about Titanic and the way that, you know, Cameron puts his actors in these water based situations. It seems so nightmarish. And this water scene looked incredibly dangerous and incredibly uncomfortable it is i mean it really is the ending of this film on the water during the storm is is intense it's an intense you know and you forget because we're so used to seeing special effects we're so used to seeing you know uh this stuff done all the time but you know when you put it yourself in the shoes of somebody from 1927 you must have been blown away by this yeah, absolutely. I love that you were thinking Titanic because when she said we did anything he wanted, yeah. even hanging out in water, I was like, oh, that is Kate Winslet. Yeah. A thousand percent. I'd love to talk about just some of the stuff also in here, you know, maybe even jumping back a little bit earlier. He has that scene of just dead on suspense, right? Yeah. When the man is luring her out to the boat, she's so excited. She changes clothes. I kind of like that first shirt she was wearing that looks like it's see-through stripes. Yeah. I mean, it looked very hipster. I feel like I would see that <laughs> at the farmer's market. Maybe not over a gigantic bonnety dress, but yeah. say la vie. But she's so thrilled. And we've already had this flashback, you know, as she's kissing goodbye to her baby, picturing them when they were younger. And people say they laughed like children. Yeah. Which basically they were children. I mean, if we're doing the math, she was like 19. Because yeah. that baby has grown six months, a year. I'm not very good at baby ages. You can probably predict how old, how much older uh, that baby is now for when we see it in the flashback. Yeah, I think that baby's like four. Yeah. Is it? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I, every baby is the same age to me. Black and white babies are hard to tell. It's like babies are either yeah. newborn to three or then they're like four to nine. And then it, maybe they get a little clearer after that. <laughs> Anyways, that's not the point. The point is that, like, almost no time has happened, and so she's so excited to go on this boat ride with him. And you have this really almost Hitchcockian kind of oh, yeah. suspense fake-out where the dog is like, they have this German Shepherd. And I actually Googled this, like, Rin Tin Tin movies were already a thing. Because I was like, hold on, what's the German Shepherd doing specifically? And Rin Tin Tin had been kind of a movie star for yeah. four years. So they're like, put a German Shepherd in there. And the dog seems to sense the man's poison, almost like it's this palpable scent that he can tell. And he's like... Don't go into that boat with your husband. Don't go into that boat. And she wants him so much. And so there's this whole back and forth with the dog breaks its chain. And then the man makes her put the boat back on shore. And you see her realize how how broken she thinks her husband might be. You know, the dog, right. of course, should be coming on the boat. And that's this first thing that tips her off. And so I was wondering, like, did Hitchcock see this film? I mean, you would guess so. I think I found evidence, though. Maybe. Because I want to play a music clip that you have from the couple when they're getting their photographs taken in the city. Okay. And they, they think they broke the head off the statue. And it's one of those bitches oh, kind yeah. of establishing what a rube they are. They don't know that famous statues don't have heads. Just the same way that when she goes to the to the barber shop, the barber is like, come back and see us. Yeah. She's like, oh, well, you must come to our house. By the please. way, I, I thought that the manicurist was the girl from the city for a second. <laughs> Did you think that or am I just an idiot? Like I was like, because, you know, she, there is something about that relationship. Where I was like, oh. Is that her? And maybe it's because, again, I have a hard time distinguishing in black and white. I'm like, I think that's the same person. And we haven't seen her for such a long time. No, I actually looked her up and she was a, a Zigfield Follies girl. Okay. And then I looked up the guy who owned the barbershop. And he turns out to be this incredibly pivotal person that we should talk about for a second. Uh, the guy who owns the barbershop, his, his name is Gino Carrado. And he is significant in film history. 
Oh, really? He's the only actor to appear in Gone with the Wind, Citizen Kane, and Casablanca. He was a huge bit actor. Oh, wow. Yeah, and in fact, we've actually seen him already. He was in Grapes of Wrath. And we're going to see him again. He's in Intolerance. And okay. he was also in Rebecca, and he's also in Scarface. He's this dude who was in everything. So she thinks they broke the head off the statue. They're freaking out, like, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And you hear this music cue. Yes, I thought about this. All right, let's play where you've also heard it. Well, I mean, how could you how could you miss it? I mean, we know it. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a new season of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Ah, <laughs> uh, so good, so good. You know, Amy, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, legacy. You know, obviously, we associate this theme with Alfred Hitchcock, not with Sunrise. Do we believe that maybe the reason why this film doesn't live large in our legacy is because there is no one there keeping it alive. When we talk about the other people, um, you know, the Charlie Chaplins, the Harold Lloyds, the Buster Keatons, they were very adamant and they were very protective of their work and getting their work out there and re-releasing their work and being a vocal proponent for it, where it seems like, um, you know, after this film in 1937 is destroyed, the original negatives are destroyed, there is no one there that is going to champion this movie and and kind of get it re-released and back into culture where right because Bruno is already dead exactly and and look he's also a German filmmaker I feel like he doesn't care necessarily even about you know uh, where he stands in the United States you know and and that in in his place in the film world of you know uh, American filmmakers I, yeah I mean I thought there was two things about that that. You know, maybe if he lived longer or if he was American, this film stays around longer. That is interesting because, you know, now that I do think about it, you're right, to have Chaplin, Keaton, and then a film from D.W. Griffith, those are our other silence on the list. And those are all major personalities, major forces of will. And we don't have that exact strong legacy here, like a torchbearer. I mean, even William Fox himself, like he dies in the 50s. Yeah. So there is nobody to carry this forward. Oh, that that does break my heart, but also because it makes me think like, what else is there that didn't have a major person attached that could? Well, I mean, that's always the thing. Treasure. Like, you know, a lot of the times, like, it's about championing the people who don't have champions, and I think you know we've we've seen that a lot in the last couple of years in our own film, you know, work. It's like, what are the films that get out there? And I, I think that we talked about this on air. You know, the last Black Man in San Francisco is a movie that I don't think really had a champion, and was a film that was universally loved, but. No one really picked up on it and, and pushed it forward where there's other filmmakers and people that, you know, get a little bit more love. That's so funny that you mentioned Les Blackman in San Francisco because I was thinking Sunrise has this quiet capitalistic element to it, too, that's about gentrification. And it's almost there is kind of a line between Sunrise and Last Black Man in San Francisco, because if there is anything in this film that passes for a subplot in the slightest degree, mm-hmm. It's that this village where the man and the women live is getting taken over by city folk. You, know, yes. you have this montage at the beginning that makes the city folk look like they're coming in almost like an invasion. It yeah. looks like a contagion. Well, it felt like to me like it, like the way that um, – it felt like people going to the Hamptons. 
Yeah. Like that's what it kind of felt like to me. Like, oh, how quaint this little island is. We're now, we'll take this over. Exactly. But the way he shoots him with this overlaying footage, it feels like a disease, right? Yes. Or even, I, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into the idea of like seeing this framed shot of a train kind of coming through the tracks. But I'm like, oh man, it's like, he's like saying city We're people fucked. are herpes. Yeah. But what you also have in here is, you know, the woman from the city is like, sell your farm, sell your right. farm, sell your farm. And then every time you see her, she's like looking at ads for selling farms. You know, well, how much money can we make from this? And one of the characters even says, the woman who lives in the house with them and they're kind of gossiping about what's happening in this marriage. Mm -hmm. She says money lenders are stripping the farm. And so they're, there's, it's definitely happening to this village that its way of life is almost over. Right. You know, and it's getting pulled apart by money from the city and what's going to happen to it. And so even though they go back and there's this bucolic ending where they're in love, I mean, dot, 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 what's going to happen in a couple of years? It's well, not going to end well. No, I mean, look, it's their, their relationship is repaired, but the problem that they're talking about is probably happening to other people. You know, what about the other man that's being seduced away from his wife who didn't decide to kill her or... or Whatever, you know, um, I'll also say that uh, when the man does see the woman from the city at the end of the film, he is so mad at her that he goes to choke her, yet she was not involved in any of this. She just, yes, she planted the seed in his head, but he is a very capable man. He does not need to be choking out this woman. Uh, you know, like, let's take a little bit of the responsibility here. Like, you know, like, let, let's do this, you know. Yeah, I could agree with that. If there's one thing I might say is like, Janet Gaynor, are you sure you want to be with this guy? He's very prone to hit a woman. He's uh, he's strangled a woman from the city twice. I know. He's planning on killing his wife. He's really not a safe bet. No, he's not a guy that you want to settle down with. In fact, that lack of taking any sort of responsibility for any of the actions in the film, it reminded me of another one of my faves, which I would almost call a problematic fave if you were going to call Sunrise mm -hmm. a problematic fave for that well, reason. Well, look, you've already had problematic faves with uh, Revenge of the Nerds. So oh, my faves are problematic. What am I going to do? If it was an easy fave, maybe I'd have to uh, find a, a problem with it. But do you know Marty Robbins, the country singer? Yes, of course. Of course. I worship him, and probably my favorite Marty Robbins song is a song that's basically the plot of Sunrise. It's called Devil Woman. Okay. And it's about a man who's married to a lovely lady named Mary, but this devil woman is to blame for taking him away. I want to even just play a clip yeah. of it. Devil woman, you're evil, like the dark coral reef, like the winds that bring high tides. You bring sorrow and greed. You made me ashamed to face Mary. Barely had the strength to tell. Skies are not so black. Mary took me back. Mary has broken your spell. Oh, devil woman. Devil woman, let go of me. Devil woman, let me be. And leave me alone. I want to go home. I mean, now I just want a gif that's playing the loop of let me go over uh, that image, that superimposition of her grabbing onto him. Well, look, all I know is that wherever a man makes a mistake, it's because a woman made him do it. And that's something I feel like I learn more and more every day. I guess you know, that's also true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and Amy, I think one of the things we haven't really spoken about is one of the other stars of this movie, somebody who did not get a credit in the beginning of it, and that is our friend The Pig for <gasps> one of the most classic, I mean, uh, if you were to say memorable or memeable uh, moments in this film, The Pig. I love The Pig. I've been waiting for you to watch this pig like a year and a half, man. Do you I, know how long it's been? Me wanting I you to know, see this pig. I've heard so much about this drunk pig. Uh, <sighs> I'm so excited that I finally saw it. And uh, it was surprising, or I should say it's a surprising interlude in this film. <laughs> I want to know if that is a real game. Hit the hole, make the little piggy roll. 
I mean, what is the game? You hit, you, you, it's like a dunking booth, but the pig gets to go down a slide. That yeah. Fun. By the way, I like that a lot. I wish you'd bring that back. <laughs> and behind them, you have like hula dancers. I swear to God, I want to hang out in this theme park so much. I want to do the little peasant dance with the dudes. The dance, by the way, being called Midsummer, which I thought was yes. a nice nod to our upcoming live show that we have at the Alamo, which yes. is all about paganism, yes. pagan dancing, village dancing. Let's just even hear a little bit of that Midsummer song. seen anybody radiate as much joy as Janet Gaynor does dancing the the Midsummer song? I know. And I I also, I mean, I didn't really watch her that much because I was watching the ogling man who is uh, (laughs) oddly touching his tie pin or his tie chain and and constantly uh, fixing the the strap on uh, the woman next to him's gown. He was uh, pure on full creep. And uh, I really enjoyed watching. I thought he was trying to keep her okay. I thought he was so frustrated with her no. dress sleeves. He, to me, is a guy who was like, he's a sexual deviant. I see the way he's touching his tie pin. And then he's also one of those sexual deviants who's like, you know what? I need to keep everybody in check. He's the worst kind. He doesn't. He's a sexual deviant who presents as someone who is like uh, trying to be nice. I did go back to see if he was the same guy who was trying to hit on Janet Gaynor in the hairdresser shop. Yes. I mean, this film, when you really look, if there is a repeating plot beat besides this idea of selling the farm, it's um, we're so jealous of everybody. Like time and time again, like she's jealous of the manicurist. Yes. He's jealous of this guy man spreading and kind of climbing yes. on her lap. Look, what else was there to do? There's no cell phones. There's no Instagram. There's no Twitter. You there's have to just, just get. Yeah, that's it. You got to get yeah. in there. I mean, even even at the end when she's getting rescued, like the fisherman's wife is jealous of the other old lady who's complimenting the fisherman for saving Janet Gaynor. But this pig, though, isn't it the cutest thing you've ever the seen? The pig is amazing. And it made me think, how do you do this? And so we actually have an expert in animal training and animal wrangling. She is a dog and pig trainer who works at Animal Attraction Unlimited, and her name is Laura Beren. So let's talk to her again. Well, so first, I need to ask you, can you train a pig to do things on movies? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. They're so easy to train, especially compared to dogs. Wait, compared, they're better than dogs? Yeah, they're, they actually, I find when I'm working with pigs, they pick things up a lot quicker. Um, they're able to kind of proof and generalize into different environments easier um, than most of the dogs that I've worked with over 16 years. Wow. Oh, wait, I'm very, yeah. I've, now I'm caught up by all of the pig movies we haven't gotten, like Call of the Pig. <laughs> Why? How yeah, come? No, ex- you know what? I think a lot of it is people don't see pigs as a family pet. They see them as food. Um, and they don't, you know, in society, we don't get raised around a lot of farm animals. So we don't realize the emotional complexity and the intelligence levels that a lot of these animals have. And pigs are extremely intelligent. They're very resourceful. They're very strong. Um, I equate when people are, you know, thinking of getting a pig, one of the things that I like to explain is, you know, you think of coming home to your dog and like the worst thing that your dog could do is like shred your couch and, you know, get into the trash and, you know, eat your favorite shoes. Um, and you think of how horrible that is if you're, you know, you've been gone for five hours and you come home to that with your dog. 
but your pig can do that level of damage in less than an hour um, <laughs> out of just sheer boredom. They can get into your cupboards. They can rip walls up. They can go through a door. It really depends on if they're panicked or if they're bored or if these, you know, met their needs or not. But they can do a lot more destruction in a home um, than they than a dog can in the same amount of time. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because I don't know if you've seen the movie Sunrise, but in five minutes, there's a tiny pig that breaks out of a yeah. carnival game and like creates havoc. Oh, Yeah. I, I watched it. I actually find silent movies to be really intriguing. Um, so I looked it up and I had fun watching it. But, it, you know, when you see them going down the slide, um, when they're younger, they're a lot less intimidated by doing new things. So it's easier to teach them, you know, going up and down ramps, going up and down slides, right. having fun climbing things. Um, I have a two-year-old pig, for example, who has no desire to get up on the couch. Um she will if I encourage her enough, but she's not She's not a fan of it. She would prefer to be on the ground. And then I have an 18-month-old whose first thing to do is, so let me see how, climb, how far up I can climb. And they were both brought up in a very early period very differently. So how do you train a pig? I mean, do you use food? Yes, pigs are very food motivated. <laughs> They're designed to be working for food all day long. Um, so they have really sensitive, powerful noses that's meant for them to be digging through the ground trying to find food sources. Um, they have a very good sense of smell, and they are extremely food motivated because they're meant to be eating all day long. Um, a lot of pigs can get obese really fast because people figure, oh, they're, they're hungry, like they're still bugging me for food. They must be hungry, so I'll feed them more. When in actuality, it's the polar opposite. Um, scattering their food around and making them work for it is more beneficial than refilling the food bowl. Um, but they will pretty much work for anything. Some pigs can be really picky. So, like, I have one that doesn't like anything that's green. Um, no kale, no lettuce, um, cucumber. If I take the peel off, she'll eat it. Uh, but other than that, she's not really into the veggies. And I have another one who eats anything that I stick in front of him. What about alcohol? So pigs can drink alcohol. They can get drunk. It can also make them very sick because just like us, they can have problems with liver cirrhosis. Um, a lot of people used to think that, you know, it was really funny to give their pigs some beer um, there's still places you can go in certain countries where you could actually pay to, you know, give a pig a beer or give a goat a beer. Um, <laughs> but you but pay has... to get the goat or pig of drunk? Of course, Amy. Yeah, yeah. There, are, there are tons of places that do that. And it's what? because people find it entertaining. What they don't realize is that it has the same effects on their body as it does on ours. Sometimes even more so. It's like when people try to get their dogs high or something like that. Yes, yes. exactly. So, okay, so if you were making a, a sequel, say, to Sunrise, if they were redoing Sunrise today, how would you make a pig look drunk? I would probably work on teaching the pig how to lift their legs up so that I could get more of a wobbly movement out of them, um, having them, you know, back up at certain cues so that you can make it seem like they're trying to go forward, but then they're, you know, teetering over and going back instead of actually, you know, getting them liquored up. <laughs> I mean, I'm curious, like, knowing pigs' behavior so well, when you watched the scene in Sunrise, do you think that pig was acting drunk or do you think they just really just got a pig drunk? Knowing the era that it was in, they probably just got the pig loaded up on some alcohol, maybe taught it to do some other silly things. Um, we didn't have the best um, concept of humane treatment of animals when it came to you know cinema back then. Yeah. Um, so the way that things are done nowadays, that would not happen. Um, they would probably teach it some behaviors that would make it look like that. Um but I think, honestly, in that in that movie, in that era, they probably did offer it some alcohol to get it there. I mean, it's just like what they did to Judy Garland. You know, they're just... <laughs> I mean, what, what impressed you about that pig scene? Was there anything where you're like, oh, well done with this pig? Yeah, I mean, when I watched him go down the slide, like, he went down the slide. He wasn't 
put down the slide. And, you know, that that showed that the pig was motivated to go do something. Um, it's silent, so we don't know whether it was motivated due to, you know, something scaring it down or if it was motivated because there was food at the bottom. Um, you would think if anybody's working with a pig, they're going to know that pigs are food motivated. So you're more likely to, you know, get it to follow you if you um, try to bring it down versus trying to scare it. At that age, it's a lot easier to deal with fear in a pig when they get bigger. Um, they'll usually behave in an aggressive manner towards it. They can do it when even when they're a few months old, um, when they're afraid. But um, likely that pig was probably lured down with something that it really wanted to eat or a place it really wanted to go to. I mean, it, the pig looked like a baby to me, but I wasn't sure if it was just yeah, a small a pig. It was definitely a baby? Yeah. It, so that would be a farm pig, not a miniature pig. And it was definitely a baby. I would say probably under three months, more like two months old, maybe a little bit younger. Wow. I mean, I wonder if that baby had any sense. Very small. It's a very big scene that it's in. I mean, there are a lot yeah. of people. There are a lot of things yeah. that I, f- I would find intimidating if I were a three-month-old pig. And if it and and that's kind of when you look at it is we don't know what was going on around it. Like if they were doing, you know, the scene where people were giving it a little bit more space, it didn't seem like it. So it was probably motivated through positive reinforcement to go to a certain area, get a piece of food, and then move on to the next scene. Um but like in the very end where he has the pig and he's lifting it up in the air, I know for a fact nobody's ears were around there were pleasant because that pig would be screaming. I often find that whenever animals come into play on set, and as somebody who has cast many an animal, I played poker against a dog in a scene that I wrote and regretted it ever since. Um, who won? Uh, the dog was very good. You know, people always are asking you to do these things that are seemingly impossible tasks. Have you ever been asked to to have to do something that is is just not in the realm of possibility? Yeah. So I when a lot of the conversations that I have with clients, whether we're dealing with behavior or obedience training, is realistic expectations. Right. Um, a lot of us kind of, we see the dog that we want to have, um, and not necessarily the dog that's in front of us. And the same goes for pigs. As you see the pig that you want to have, you know, you want to have this, this dog or this pig that goes anywhere with you and can go see everybody. But just like us, we don't, you know, there's people that don't like to go out. There's people that don't like large groups and there's certain people that don't get along with other people. And it's not that they have any certain problem. It's just a personality clash and you'd prefer to not be around them. And dogs and pigs are very much the same. Pigs are very different in the sense that, um, as far as other animals go, they are constantly, you know, moving. They're doing their own thing. They, um, they're they a prey animal. So mixing pigs and dogs or mixing pigs and groups of people can cause the pig to become very stressed because they're basically being surrounded by predators. Um, mm. Even if we're not actively hunting them, it can make right. them very nervous and on edge. So That's true. Even though we don't at, have fangs, they must know that we're predators. Yeah. It's you know we it would be great if we could communicate like hey we're we're all just your friends here and and there's some animals that are just like that they love everybody, um, and then there's other animals that are very polar opposite they would just rather keep to themselves and have you know any sort of interaction done on their terms, and having realistic expectations of the animal you have in front of you can actually open up a whole new realm of possibilities than what you originally thought. So like I had a client that all they wanted was their dog to play fetch with a ball. Right. And that was just her dream for her first dog is, you know, she always wanted a dog she could play fetch with. Her dog had absolutely no desire to play fetch with a ball. But the dog loved odor and went into nose work with no problem whatsoever. So she was able to come and, you know, learn a different sport that her dog actually really liked that she started to enjoy, even though it had absolutely nothing to do with fetch. So are there pig performances in film that you find just very well done? They're kind of the gold standard? Um, 
I think there's not a ton of movies that involve pigs in them. And it's usually they're walking from point A to point B um, and standing in a certain spot. Um, so we're almost underusing their brains and what they're capable of on film? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you look at what pigs are capable of doing, there's people that have problems that their pigs will open the door. They'll, they'll get in and out of the house. They'll ransack stuff. They act just like a child. Yeah. Um, they learn really quickly, you know, how to get into things. Like, for example... Um, when I had Gwendolyn, which is my two-year-old, as a baby, she, I got her when she was about four months old. She figured out how to use the baby gate and open it in about two days, and then she would purposefully let all the dogs out. Oh, my <laughs> purposely? gosh. She, wait, you say, who let the dogs out, and the answer would be <laughs> yeah, it's the You pig. know. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> and it's because she watches how, you know, it opens and messes it with her right. nose and realizes, like, I can flick this up, and I can go where I want to go. But she would also do it like, I can just let them out. And as soon as my mom hears that they're out, then she'll come out here and she'll pay attention to me. Instead of, you know, her being in the kitchen playing with her toy, she's done with her toy and I walked into the other room. And she's like, no, let the dogs out, then she'll come pay attention to me. I mean, that makes me want to write a film that really has a good part for a pig. I mean, could, could you just... Babe! Right, I mean... Ba- ba- babe is a, is a good movie. <laughs> I think it's because we, we had so many different animals in that movie and they all did different behaviors that were very much what they should be doing um that it just made that movie so much better yeah but i mean you make me want to have like a james bond with a pig <laughs> like hey, a jason Bourne. Like yeah a... right <laughs> i mean i love it i could see that if a, if a pig can do if a pig can go down a slide and if a pig can open up a gate i don't see why a pig can't save the world uh, look i mean look now you've laid down the gauntlet let's get a pig movie going i'm down I think it would be a lot of fun. I, you know, it might take several pigs to get it, but, you know, <laughs> they can all be taught really easily to do stuff and they have fun with it. All right. Well, this is it. You've heard it here first. We are doing a pig James Bond and awesome. you have you've given us the uh, you've given us the go ahead. I love it all. Uh, this has been so fun chatting with you. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That interview made me so happy. I love that all. I mean, my God, the way the pig's legs and this are just, they're going diagonal, they're splaying, they're all over the place. So yes, drunk pigs are a thing. And then I got thinking, like, can drunk pigs cause as much chaos? Because okay. you hear tons of chaos in this. The women are screaming, they're acting like it's a rat. The whole thing is disrupted, which gives the farm people a chance to prove they're better than the people from sure. the city because they're they alone, I alone can get this drunk pig. So I was wondering, like, are drunk pigs even a problem? And then I found this on a Fox News affiliate. Oh, of course. A feral pig gets drunk as a skunk and terrorizes a campsite. Happened to a group of campers in Port Hedland, Australia. They woke up to find a boar 
drinking his way through 18 cans of their beer. Maybe he was thirsty. Wow. Feral pigs are known to be, well, a problem, but this one, when he was drunk, a real handful. The pig got into a fight with a cow, toppled trash cans, threatened the camper's cars before they finally chased him away, and, well, I guess he passed out under a log. Wildlife officials say they are reminding anyone staying outside to lock up their liquor. Did you have any nights like that after drinking 18 cans of beer? I have never drinking 18 <laughs> cans of beer. <laughs> and, uh, no, 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 no <laughs> problems like, it like that. It strangely sounds like other news stories we've done, except not with pigs. I, one, of our, one of our people in Washington said it reminds her of what happens every weekend when her husband's friends come. Oh, home. ouch. Ooh. I hope that can't be attributed <laughs> anywhere. Thanks for joining us, everybody. By the way, Paul, I feel like I broke format a little bit by playing a song I really like on this show. I know, a little bit. So I thought I would make up for it by playing a song called Drunk Pig from a band named Borscht. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, Amy, we've talked a lot. We've talked about pigs. We've talked about emotions. We've talked about German expressionism. But now I guess the only question that kind of stands, I mean, touch upon it a little bit, was how was this film received? I mean, did people, it seemed like people really liked it, especially critically. I know we know that the audiences didn't really find it, but were there any critics that did not get this film? Yeah, I mean, for a positive review, one that I really liked was the New York Times critic who um, said that before he saw it, he saw this a newsreel of Mussolini talking where that was in sound and he heard the hooves of horses on the film reel. And I thought, oh, man, here it really comes. Like yeah. this screening to sit in this theater with this New York critic and be like, sight and sound yeah, all coming together. Is. But he ended that review by calling Sunrise, quote, a film masterpiece. He mm. loved it, but I did find a negative review from a man named Welford Beaton who wrote for Film Spectator. Mm -hmm. And he said this. Murnau's direction reflects German arrogance. His players are chessmen, and he moves them as such. Murnau is cold, too cold to ever give us a truly great picture. A man who can make us cry is a greater director than one who only makes us think. A combination of the Murnau mechanics and the Borzage humanity would have made Sunrise the greatest picture of all time. Mm. I think I read in there a little bit, because Sunrise can make me cry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure what he talks about. I think I read in there some anti-Germanness. Just the coldness. Interesting. It's okay, very yeah. stereotypical to me. And then he compliments Borzage, this director who made another film this year that also starred Janet Gaynor. It was called Seventh Heaven. And it yeah. was also expressionist, but very emotional. It was more of a, an overt tragedy. And this film was incredibly popular. And so you have this, when they were at the Oscars, they were nominated against each other in a lot of categories. And actually, Sunrise winds up winning Best Cinematography, but Borzage wins Best Director at this first Oscars for a film with Janet Gaynor. Right. And so they were really competitive. I think there was just kind of a mean little elbow at a review. Like, this feels like one I would write. Like, I really like this film better than that film, right. so I'm going to like, stack my cards yeah, yeah. and say that this is way too cold, way too cold. And speaking of which, that makes me want to talk about how Janet Gaynor won Best Actress at these Oscars for all three roles. Because back then in the Oscars, they would combine things and be like, you know what? You were so great in all of these. You get the Oscar for everything. So she wins the Best Actress Award for Seventh Heaven, Street Angel, and Sunrise all together. Which makes her our very first Best Actress winner, which I feel like alone should make people remember this film. I know, but it, it doesn't. She's incredible. I mean, I think Janet is better known for being in the very first Star is Born, which okay. was 10 years later. She makes the very first Star is Born in 1937, which, hot take, it might be my favorite Star is Born. 
Wow, okay. It's really good. And to me, it's amazing that Janet could play an ingenue like 10 years into her career, where she's already a Best Actress yeah, yeah. winner. She plays a person who's just now winning her first Oscar, which is a scene in that movie. And if you've seen any of the Star is Borns, you can imagine what's happening here. When something like this happens to you, and you try to tell how you feel about it, you find that out of all the words in the world, there are only two that really mean anything. Thank you. All I can do is to say them to you from my heart. All I can do is to keep on saying them. Hey, that's fine. All the thing. That's a very pretty speech, my dear. Very pretty. You said the right thing. I want to be the very first one to congratulate you on that, on that valuable little piece of bric-a-brac. Now I want to make a speech. Gentlemen of the Academy and fellow suckers, I got one of those ones for a best performance. They don't mean a thing. People get them every year. But I want a special award, something nobody else can get. I want a statue for the worst performance of the year. There is a little bit in this scene that I find really autobiographical. Right. Because Janet Gaynor, here being heard in A Star is Born, wins the Oscar herself for right. The Star is Born. So she wins two Best Actress Oscars in a decade. And then she retires. She's able to walk away from it and say, I've kind of done it. I'm, I'm always okay amazed at these Hollywood. people who just kind of like just up and done. Yeah. She says, you know what? I've been in Hollywood since I was a little kid, since I was a teenager. I have never had any time to get married. I've never right. had any time to myself. My career has been my entire life. And now I want to get married and have a kid, which she does. She marries the fashion costumer, Adrian. Um, but I don't know. There's something about Janet and her place in Oscar history I find really beautiful, which is why on the 50th Oscars that they ever right. did – they brought her out while she was still alive. Oh, wow. Here she is. I've been asked to help give the award for outstanding performance by an actress in a leading role. The nominees are not tonight, but that night at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard. The nominees were Louise Dressler in A Ship Comes In, Gloria Swanson in Sadie Thompson, Janet Gaynor in Street Angel, Janet Gaynor in Seventh Heaven, and Janet Gaynor in Sunrise. Wow. And the winner is, well, I don't really need an envelope. The winner is Janet Gaynor. Gaynor, welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Walter, and thank you all. I'm... So happy that both the Academy and I uh, survived uh, to celebrate this golden anniversary. <laughs> you have no idea how different this is from the Blossom Room. That night, I competed for the first Oscar with Louise Dresser and Gloria Swanson. Uh, King Vidor was there, and of course, my two glamorous co-stars, Charles Farrell and George O'Brien, and but enough. I had my night. Tonight belongs to this year's nominees. Oh, and then she, That's so sweet. She has the same smile here that she did in this film, and I love her so much. She's great. That did feel incredibly scripted to me. It, uh, like, it felt she like they were... She couldn't do any talking in Sunrise. What do you want, man? All right. She didn't have dialogue. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. I just wanted to see a little bit more of real emotion. It felt like everything was like, 
Well, you whatever. are a monster. Anyway. Um, I'm going to put weights in your shoes. I guess my question is, how many Simpsons clips are there <laughs> devoted to Sunrise? And was it hard just to pick just one? Yeah. Well, the answer is no, there is no Simpsons. However, when I really started to think about it, I began to think about the influence that Sunrise had. Just laughing, but there is an American dad, oddly. I don't know. <laughs> what? Really? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go back to what I was going to say, all right? All right, sorry. All right, sorry, right, sorry, right, sorry, sorry, sorry. Right, I was going to say that I was thinking about the influence that Sunrise had, even though the film itself was not was not yeah. that huge of a hit, even though Murnau himself did not get to make anything he ever loved as much here in Hollywood. You know, you talked about the expensive set they built. One of the filmmakers who worked on it was John Ford. I and heard. John Ford loved sunrise it took a lot of what sunrise did in that immerse in, in that expressionism in that idea of like inside the house versus outside of the house the the wilderness and he put that in his films he used a lot of Murnau as his early dna and then everybody else uses john ford as their dna and then in this idea of expressing things visually i think you wind up you know Having that idea kind of seep into all of Hollywood. I, I went and rewatched. It's silly. I watched the Pink Elephants on Parade number okay. from uh, from Dumbo after this. Because, I don't know, I was thinking about drunk animals and wondering if there is any kind of connection there. And when you watch that scene, you know, I feel like you could not do animation that style without somebody like Murnau showing you what expressionism was and how to squish and stretch characters, how to yeah. be evocative. And I think that because of that, anytime you see... Anything that breaks the boundaries of what film was maybe supposed to do or could have done yeah. when it was just strict theater, it is sunrise afflicted. This is this is like a long-winded way of saying, you know, I feel like anytime you have something in the family guy where they're like, oh, remember that time? Clip, clip, clip. Right. Flashback. There's a touch of sunrise in there. I'm going to make that argument. I, that I like Sunrise idea. breaking the format of storytelling lets us do that. And so with that in mind, I did pick a Simpsons clip. Oh, boy. It's a Simpsons clip from an episode called The Devil Wears Nada. Okay. And what's going on in here is that Homer Simpson has gone to the city. He's gone to a totally different, radical, confusing, disorienting city. He's in Paris, and he misses Marge, and he starts imagining Marge everywhere. He imagines her face in the baguettes. He imagines her face in the fan blades. It is a silent clip from The Simpsons, and I think even that itself feels sunrisey into me. And I would like to say that this moment of The Simpsons could not have been made if sunrise didn't exist. Okay. Okay. that siren ending was just the perfect capper because it reminded me of the way that the man calls out his yes. wife's name when they're on the boat. That and he's trombone at the end, I exactly. know. Exactly. Let's listen to that. And so with that, I think my trombone call is for releasing the idea of things needing to be literal and sensical in film. Okay. That's my trombone. Mama. <laughs> Why not? Why can't we have more poetry? I love it all. And I think we do have poetry, Amy. I think there's a lot there. I think that, you know, we are constantly discovering, you know, different ways to tell stories and uh, and let 
films exist in a very unique way that doesn't have to fit into a category. And I think you could see that in a movie like Moonlight. I think Moonlight has a lot of those elements to it. I think you could see elements of this in Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, like this, the simplicity of just people interacting and, and living a night or a life. You know, I love I love a, a night movie, you know, a movie that says like one night and after hours or something like that. Uh, Days and Confused, things of those nature. I think you get to see a lot of that. And I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think there's a lot of DNA here. I don't know if it's directly, you know, directly connected to Sunrise, but I, I think that it was maybe a start. Okay. Well, speaking of missing DNA, by the way, mm-hmm. as, as we wrap up here, I mean, people might have heard the name Renault more recently than they think if they're a fan of American Horror Story. Right. In American Horror Story, in the hotel season, uh, the one with Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga meets Rudolph Valentino. There's not really a good clip of this, mm-hmm. but Rudolph Valentino tells her that he's a vampire and he fakes his own death and he became a vampire because F.W. Murnau turned him into a vampire. That while Murnau was researching uh, Nosferatu, he became a vampire and then he's been passing it along to keep I mean, isn't the shadow of the vampire... Forever. Also that, I pulled a clip from The Shadow of the Vampire where you can hear John Malkovich play F.W. Murnau, who, by the way, I'll, I know, I feel like I'm throwing this in really last minute, was, was also a distinctive figure because he apparently was one of the only openly gay directors in Hollywood. I don't know how open you want to say, but right. everybody who talks about him feels like they're confident in able, being able to say that about him. He was a really important, lovely, memorable person, and here is John Malkovich uh, being him as he directs a scene in a silent era, which means he could talk through the whole action, which also means, as Janet Gaynor said, sometimes he would make them do like 20 or 30 takes. Yeah. You watch him, Orlock, drop your paper. You look at Gustav. Gustav, keep watching him. Take your right hand and reach for the bread knife. Watch him. Breathing. What will happen? Reach out, take the loaf of bread, and cut yourself a slice. Yes. Slicing, slicing, you're slicing. Toward you, toward you. Watching him. Slicing, slicing. Watch out. Slicing. Watch your finger! Look! No to Blood! Blood! Damn it, mother! I really did cut my... Oh, go and check the generator. You did that intentionally. Calm down. I'll see to the light. That knife was sharp like a Good brain. Stop. Remain in character. Love it. <laughs> By the way, this week is the 99th anniversary of Murnau's death. But if you want to go to his grave to salute him, you should know something important, which is in 2015, five years ago, somebody stole his head. From his grave. Wow, they dug it up and took his head. They dug it up and took his head. And the police found remnants of candle wax. So they think it might have been some sort of dark art, black magic Nosferatu wow. society that took the head of, of the man course. named Nosferatu. Yeah, of course. But they have not found his head. His head is still at large. All right, well, that will be for our next podcast, uh, <laughs> Unsolved Movie Mysteries. It's uh, where we get to the bottom of it all. I know we talked about it a lot. Uh, we obviously believe this movie belongs on the list. Uh, obviously a lot higher. I'm going to go out on a crazy limb right now and say I would put this in the in the top 20. You know what? Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Why think, not? Yeah. Like, this is film language. This is film. I this really do believe it. And I, I think, uh, you know, very rarely on this list do I get so jazzed about seeing something that really kind of blows me away. I don't know if it's because it's new, but I think when something is so old uh, and is 
feels so alive and vibrant. Uh, I think it's worthy of of putting it up a little bit higher. Not even a little. A I lot. Mean, we're like number yeah, 20 we're, with we're a bullet. Yeah, we're jacking it up. We're yeah. putting it up. Um, well, what would be the expressionist symbol for that? Are we, am I going to like put it on a firework and send it up to I think so as a as a uh, a roller coaster goes you know we <laughs> we go up 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 and we don't go down again Wait what if we had title cards as we talked and I've said you know in scripted fun what if we put it higher and then the word Word went high I like it or just went to the top of the screen I love it all Well Amy um we are now going to Another film that I would argue equally is as influential as far as what uh, comes after it. Uh, we talked a lot about how, you know, filmmakers trying to get away from plays. This is something that I think uh, brings us a little bit back to plays, but also sets the tone for our culture in so many ways, which is 12 Angry Men. 12 Angry Men, a movie I have not seen. I wonder if it'll feel out of place. I mean, in a time where everybody on the street's so happy all the time. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, but you know what? I wonder how this movie will feel in a time of, you know, uh, films and, uh, you know, murder docs where we, we, I think we get to see a lot of what goes on in the jury room. I mean, you know, I think the O.J. Simpson uh FX show that was this on, you know, really embraced that to a certain extent. We've seen this story so many times, but this is the original one. This is the one that kind of kicks it off to a certain degree. So I'm excited to kind of get back in, but see if it still feels like it has some uh, pertinence to it. So there you go. Um, Now we do have a question for you. You know, obviously serving on a jury is a civic duty and we've watched many a film where the bad guy is captured at the end, but we've never get to see what the what the trial would be like. So um, maybe we would let you weigh in on someone that maybe was arrested for a crime, but you think might have gotten off when their actual case went to court. Like what's a what's a criminal that maybe have a, a a little bit of circumstantial evidence on? You mean as in if the woman in the city rode into town on that buggy and was like, "I was assaulted last night by a man who tried to murder me." Is there enough real evidence? I mean, you know, as uh, as I know, I just was on the Jensen and Holes podcast, a, a murder podcast. You need to have more than circumstantial evidence um, in uh, in your trial. So maybe is there a, a movie bad guy that might have gotten taken down? in a way that would not hold up in court. I would love to see where we go. Think on all your movie bad guys and let us know who you think might have gotten off if they went to jury. You can call us at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Really think about it. And uh, I can't wait to hear who you think would get off if they went to trial. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.